G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. When we left off last week, we were left reeling by the realisation that the text of the Samaritan Pentateuch had been deliberately changed from the original Hebrew in order to delegitimize Jerusalem as a central point of the worship of Yahweh and Tim. You said that we were not done yet uncovering conspiracies around biblical manuscript traditions. Yeah, that's right, Chris. We still have a whole other mess to sort out concerning the differences between the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible and the Hebrew version that exists today. Now, the Masoretic text provides a chronology that points ultimately toward legitimizing the authentic worship of God centered around the cult at Jerusalem in the 4th century BC, which is, of course, reinforced by the rest of the narrative throughout the entire Hebrew Bible. And that ties into legitimizing the messianic expectations of the Jews. Let's have a look at the date of composition of our different translations. The Greek translation was done in the 3rd century BC. The Samaritan text arose a century later after Jubilees was written. Actually, first Enoch comes between the Septuagint and Jubilees. But we didn't get the Masoretic text as it appears today until the medieval period, which is almost a thousand years after the Septuagint. That's a process that began in the second century. So that's a text that arose in the form that we have it from rabbinic Judaism, rather than the kind of Jewish belief and practice that existed in the lead up to the advent of Christ. Are you saying that the Masoretic text might be different from what existed in the time before Jesus? Like the Hebrew Bible that they had in the first century was different to the Hebrew Bible that we have now? I certainly think that's possible. And if that's the case, then that's going to potentially turn our assumptions about the authority of the different translations on their heads. That's going to have massive implications for how we understand the chronology presented in Genesis 5 and also later in Genesis 11. Because remember, as I said before, we are reconstructing these things from a very distant perspective. And the assumptions we bring into the texts are going to have a massive impact on how we interpret the data. So we'd better make sure that we do our due diligence in finding out as much as we can to piece together a more accurate view of the past, rather than trusting old assumptions. And it's for that reason that I'm going to bring you some material from a fellow named Henry B. Smith Jr. in a paper that he wrote in 2018. It's called The Case for the Septuagint's Chronology in Genesis 5 and 11. Uh, it was published in Proceedings of the Eighth International Conference on Creationism, which was edited by J.H. Whitmore. Uh, this came out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, from the Creation Science Fellowship. I'll give you a quote here from the abstract of the article. Many biblical scholars who interpret the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11 as yielding a continuous chronology from Adam to Abraham claim the Hebrew Masoretic text preserves the original begetting ages for the patriarchs. The Masoretic text's total for this period is 2,008 years. The Samaritan Pentateuch presents markedly different chronological data for each epoch for a grand total of 2,249 years. Calculations derived from the primary manuscripts of the Greek Septuagint yield a chronology of 3,394 years for this period, 1,386 years greater than the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text is classically represented by the Usher chronology, I mentioned that before, remember, which places creation at 4,004 BC and the flood at 2,348 BC. Figures from the Septuagint place creation 
at around 5,554 BC and the flood at 3,298 BC. This paper proposes that the Septuagint preserves most of the original numbers in Genesis 5 and 11. Most of the Masoretic text's chronology in Genesis 5 and 11 does not represent the original text and is the result of a deliberate and systematic post-AD 70 corruption. Right, that's the end of the quote. Them's fighting words. Just so we're clear, this specifically concerns the ages at which the patriarchs begat their sons. So we're not talking about total ages. And it covers the entire period of the primeval history, not just Genesis 5. The first thing we need to deal with is recognition that just because one textual tradition has been maintained and employed by most translations of the Bible, that doesn't mean that we should defer to it without question when the issue of textual variance is raised. While it's true that the Masoretic text provides in general terms the most reliable witness to the original Hebrew Bible, it's not infallible and it's not above investigation. Remember that the Masoretic text is not the original version of scripture, it is a copy and we need to treat it as such. We need to keep in mind the fact that for almost 2,000 years, the text of the Septuagint was considered to be an authoritative text by faithful Jews and Christians alike. Things changed in the time of the Reformation, and while the widespread acceptance of the Masoretic text has brought us closer to the inspired word of God in general terms, we need to continue to evaluate each translation on its merits in every situation, rather than applying a blanket endorsement across a single translation at the cost of rejecting the others. The fact remains that the biblical text was composed and copied and translated in a piecemeal fashion and is not the product of a single hand at one time in history. And that means that criticisms of difficulties in some parts of the Greek translation do not impugn the whole of the translation. In other words, you can't just turn around and say, well, the Septuagint has issues in 1 Samuel, therefore you can't rely on it in the primeval history. It doesn't work like that. The translations of those books were undertaken by different scribes in different times and as such do not necessarily have the same degree of accuracy or follow the same principles of interpretation. Remember that the Septuagint has that name because it was translated by 70 scribes over a period of many years. One common argument against the Septuagint is the fact that in different manuscripts of the Greek translation, there are variances found in the numbers preserved in these copies of Genesis 5 and 11. But we need to think critically about this and recognize that variations within manuscripts, firstly, have an explanation, and secondly, do not preclude the possibility of preserving, in at least one instance, the original true numbers. So how could you explain the fact that different manuscripts within the Greek tradition have got, in some cases, minor variations in some of the numbers provided in Genesis 5 and 11? It's actually a simple answer, and it just comes down to document control. Now, I don't know about you, but if you work for any self-respecting business who deals with potentially sensitive paperwork, you'll understand the importance of document control in order to prevent miscommunication and to maintain ownership of information. And that's the kind of scenario that we have when we consider the Masoretic text, which was a carefully guarded textual tradition in the hands of a close-knit community of scribes known as the Masoretes. Basically, they wanted control of the biblical narrative, and so they were zealous in their maintenance of their documentary tradition and in the elimination of any variant that might appear. This is what accounts for the uniformity of Masoretic text manuscripts. These guys were basically the TVA for the Hebrew Bible as far as Judaism was concerned. Now, if you're a Loki fan, you'll get that reference. Not so with the Septuagint, which was widely circulated among the Jews from Hellenistic times through the dispersion of the Jews in the wake of the destruction of the Second Temple 
and following the adoption of the Greek Old Testament by the Christian Church. The idea was that rather than have a single source of information carefully guarded by a select minority, the key to preserving Holy Scripture was to get it into as many places and into as many hands as physically possible in order to ensure that it would never be eradicated. And certainly this strategy has resulted inevitably in minor variations, errors and corrections, but due to the significant numbers of manuscripts available, it hasn't been difficult to arrive at a consensus of what the original translation would have been. God never promised to preserve any particular translation or manuscript tradition, but he did promise to preserve his word, and God has indeed been faithful to his word. We seem to view manuscript tradition as a bit of a succession for some reason, which is hard to understand because there's no real reason for it. It's important to remember that in the time of the Greek and Roman empires, the Septuagint did not stand alone and it didn't just spring out of nowhere. The Hebrew Bible from which it was translated was still available and people of those times frequently had access to either or both of them. When examining the works of Josephus, commentators note that although he wrote in Greek, Josephus showed considerable evidence that he was capable of translating scripture directly from the original Hebrew, and often did so rather than simply quoting the Septuagint. While we're on the topic of extra-biblical witnesses to biblical texts, let's also consider Pseudophilo's work called Liber Antiquitatum Biblicarum, or we'll just call that the LAB, uh, from the first century AD. I should point out too that just because academics refer to this author as Pseudophilo, that doesn't mean that this guy was a fake or a fraud or something. He's known as Pseudophilo because for some considerable time it was believed that his works were actually written by Philo, but then later on somebody realised that it couldn't have been Philo. The problem is we still don't know who it really was. That doesn't mean that everything this guy wrote is fake or a forgery or a fraud or just straight out lies. All it means is that we don't know who actually wrote it. And because we used to think it was Philo, we end up just using that term pseudo-philo to refer to him. Well, we still don't know who wrote Hebrews either, really, but that's okay. Yeah, good point. So getting back to what he wrote, which is the whole point, uh, LAV is also called the Book of Biblical Antiquities, a work which we have in Latin, translated from an intermediate Greek text. It's basically a record of biblical history from Adam to Saul. It also has some non-canonical Jewish material in it too. Here's another quote from Smith's paper that I was quoting before about LAB. LAB chapter 1 from 2 to 22 includes begetting ages and remaining years from Seth to Lamech. LAV contains a few accidental scribal errors, but they're easily reconstructed and are only compatible with the longer Genesis 5 chronology. Scholars who have extensively studied LAV unanimously agree that it was originally written in Hebrew. The author had a strong Pharisaic background and wrote in Israel proper during the first century AD and before the destruction of the temple. Feldman adds, in his approach, Pseudophilo, like the authors of the Apocalypse of Baruch and of Fourth Esdras, and like Josephus, represents a Pharisaic outlook, but he is more overt in stressing the current theological viewpoints of the rabbis. Moreover, the author used a Hebrew text of Genesis. Since LAB was written in Hebrew, by a Hebrew, in the land of the Hebrews, there are no grounds to surmise that it depends on the Septuagint. And Jacobson adds, aside from the prima facie improbability of this, it is hard to understand why someone who could write a skillful Hebrew prose in biblical style and clearly had an expert knowledge of the Hebrew Bible would have felt the need or desirability of consulting translations of the Bible. 
Okay, so that's the end of the quote. So this is an important consideration as we look into manuscript traditions because it's telling us that there is considerable evidence for the widespread availability of an original Hebrew Bible that still existed in the first century and which therefore existed at the same time as the Septuagint. And those manuscripts that we have from authors such as Josephus and Pseudophilo show clear evidence of depending not on the Greek translation, but on that original Hebrew Bible. But the important thing to note is the consistency between the Septuagint and the use of the original Hebrew version. There is very strong evidence that the Septuagint followed the original Hebrew version extremely closely, and that puts it at odds with other late translations like the Samaritan and the Masoretic versions. But weren't we saying earlier that it looks like the timeline of the Septuagint was inflated artificially? Well, to answer that, I'm going to refer again to Smith's paper, and here's another quote about that issue. The longest Septuagint chronology is presently traceable to when Jewish scribes in Alexandria, Egypt, originally translated the Pentateuch into Greek, circa 281 BC. This means either... A, the Septuagint translators used a Hebrew text with the longer chronology, or B, the Septuagint translators fabricated it. If A is true, then a very ancient Hebrew text contained the longer chronology. Many Masoretic text proponents have assumed that B must be true, often claiming that the Alexandrian translators intentionally inflated the chronology to reconcile it with Egyptian history. Many specifically point to the Egyptian priest Manetho's chronology as the catalyst. Numerous scholars have used this argument to explain the length and origin of the Septuagint's primeval chronology. First, to my knowledge, this explanation originated in the 19th century AD. No ancient author has made this claim. Second, the hypothesis fails to achieve its stated goal. Bickerman notes that according to Manetho, the pharaohs began to reign in the year 4244 BC, about a millennium before the earliest flood date, which can be derived from the Septuagint. Ray concurs, the suggestion that the Septuagint chronology resulted as a response to the Egyptian chronology of Manetho is inadequate. The modern scheme is dated to about 3000 BC, However, Manetho's actual figures total 5,471 years by dead reckoning, from the first dynasty to the conquering of Egypt by Alexander the Great, a figure which was assumed as fairly accurate until recently. Ancient witnesses such as Julius Africanus, who lived AD 170 to 240, affirmed that Egyptian chronologies in general were much longer than the Septuagint's. He said the Egyptians indeed, with their boastful notions of their own antiquity, have put forth a sort of account of it by the hand of their astrologers in cycles and myriads of years. They think they fall in with the eight or nine thousands of years. Similarly, Theophilus of Antioch, who died in AD 183, argues the age of the world at 5529 BC is much more recent than the 15 times 10,375 years, as we've already mentioned, Apollonius the Egyptian gave out. And Eusebius suggested that Egyptian chronologies in antiquity should be deflated to bring them into line with the comparatively shorter and, in his view, accurate Septuagint chronology. Moreover, Genesis in the Septuagint exhibits no evidence of a large-scale accommodation to Egyptian cosmogony, theogony, or anthropogony. It is highly implausible that the Jewish scribes in Alexandria would thoroughly capitulate to Egyptian worldview claims only in Genesis 5 and 11. 
Panhart agrees. The Septuagint translators never had the freedom to take over non-Israelite tradition in its written form into the context of their translations. The freedom given to them was not that of alteration, rather theirs was the responsibility of preservation. One might simply claim that the Alexandrian translators or other unknown scribes arbitrarily inflated the chronology, but for no discernible reason. This kind of ad hoc explanation is deeply inadequate. First, a compelling reason and motive for this kind of systematic revision is essential for any reconstruction theory. Answering the question, why did this change occur in the text, is central to the text-critical enterprise. Moving a little further along in Smith's paper, still on the issue of Septuagint inflation hypothesis, we read this. In summary, Septuagint inflation hypotheses fail in part or whole on eight major points. One, they cannot explain the matching begetting ages in the Samaritan Pentateuch and Septuagint of Genesis 11, which would need to arise separately and independently, and yet somehow identically, if any Septuagint inflation hypothesis were true. The Samaritan Pentateuch certainly did not originate from the Septuagint. Number two, there are no ancient testimonies to support these hypotheses. Number three, it would have been impossible for the Septuagint translators or anyone else to get away with such a fraud due to the subsequent dissemination of the Septuagint throughout the diaspora. Jewish communities embraced and used the Septuagint for several centuries before the advent of the church. A falsely inflated primeval chronology would have been quickly exposed as fraudulent. Number four, Genesis in the Septuagint bears no evidence of significant conformity to Egyptian worldview claims, making it dubious that the translators would have corrupted the sacred text to conform solely with Egyptian chronology. Number five, the Septuagint's chronology fails to equal or surpass ancient versions of Egyptian chronology. Number six, if the goal of equaling or surpassing Egyptian chronology was real, then the Septuagint's chronology should be much longer than it presently is. Genesis 5 would have been expanded by at least two millennia. Genesis 11 could have been inflated by several centuries. The Septuagint and Old Testament textual scholars maintain that the numbers in Septuagint Genesis 5 and 11 should be attributed to the Septuagint's Hebrew predecessor, not the translators. Thus, the Septuagint testifies to an early 3rd century BC Hebrew text of Genesis with the longer chronology. Number eight, there is external evidence of Hebrew Genesis texts that contained the longer primeval chronology in the 1st century AD and earlier. Any inflation theory must provide a specific and adequate motive for inflating the numbers. To my knowledge, a coherent, rational explanation and viable motive for inflations in the Septuagint that can account for all of the evidence has yet to be produced. And that's the end of the quote. What that's telling us is that we actually don't have a compelling reason to show that the authors of the Septuagint artificially inflated the numbers on the genealogies, but at the same time, we should also ask if there were reasons why the Masoretes used a particular chronology that differed from the original Hebrew text as corroborated by the Septuagint and many first century witnesses. And the reason is that late Jewish traditions began to work out chronologies in the opposite manner to what we've been talking about here. What do you mean by that? So you'll remember that I've said many times that the goal of genealogy is to make a connection from the distant past to more recent times. The movement is directed from the past toward the present. The purpose of the text is to direct your attention toward the present rather than casting it back in time. But in the composition of the Hebrew Bible, we find another principle at work. 
The reason the begetting ages are included in the genealogy is because it provides not just a genealogical connection, but a chronology with fixed dates. And in the Second Temple period, we have people treating biblical chronology as a means to calculate the dates and times of things back in the past. Events like the flood and the creation. Okay, so why are they doing that? They're doing that because they're looking for something somewhere in time, and that means you need to know where you're at relative to a certain point in time. And creation becomes especially important because if you're going to reckon time from some fixed point, why not start at the beginning? So that becomes the anchor point for messianic expectation. It's going to be so many years from this date and then Messiah will come. Now, you're not going to hear this from any other commentator, but that's what I believe is the whole reason that we have those beginning ages in the primeval history in the first place. You'll notice that Although we've established that there's a correlation with the Sumerian king list in terms of a series of eight total lifespans between the first man and the flood hero, no such genealogical data exists for the king list, nor could it given the nature of the list as a succession of unrelated kings. So while the king list appears to provide a chronology of the kingship, it's not doing the same thing that Genesis is doing in presenting both a genealogy and a timeline. So what we're able to conclude concerning the correlation that we pointed out earlier between the reign of kings in the Sumerian king list and the age of patriarchs in Genesis 5 is that there was a common core of historical data that both traditions are drawing from and that probably did not originally include the age of begetting sons and that kind of thing. That's information that has been introduced at some time prior to the composition of the primeval history. And we've got to be careful not to overreach with our conclusions on that and cast doubt on the validity of the biblical data in light of that information, because we don't have any legitimate grounds to say that it isn't true. All we can say is that it probably wasn't contained in the very earliest records of the history of kings or patriarchs in Mesopotamia before the flood. Because if that were the case, then in the earliest parts of the Torah, we should have been able to find some kind of evidence that this timeline was in use. But again, these timelines are applied in retrospect. That means they're imposed on the text at a later point rather than built from scratch at point zero in the timeline. Notice also that there's widespread agreement across the scope of biblical traditions concerning the total lifespan of each patriarch. Of course, there are some minor variations for reasons that we've already talked about, but the begetting ages in particular didn't seem to be considered authoritative across the spectrum of traditions. And I believe that's because this is information that was added later. And it would have been known that this wasn't part of the original data set of patriarchs and their total lifespans. None of this, by the way, should impact a balanced view of the inspiration of scripture. I'm not saying that those numbers shouldn't have been there or something. Not only that, but another thing you'll notice is that there's no biblical data that relies on those begetting ages being present in the text. So in theory, this information could have been brought into the text fairly late. And I'm talking post-exilic, early Second Temple period context. And I say that because that's the point at which people begin to consider these chronologies to be important. You don't have evidence earlier than that of any particular need to establish chronology relative to any fixed point. The Jews had originally believed that using the prophecy of Daniel 9 as a prophetic clock, the Messiah would come and usher in the millennium. But when that Messiah turned out to be Jesus, and the correlation worked out precisely down to the day, that timing didn't work out for them anymore because they'd already rejected Jesus. And any notion that he might have ushered in the millennial reign of the Messiah was clearly dashed when Jerusalem burned in AD 70. So the solution was to change the timeline. Boom. No more embarrassing timeline, no more Jesus, no more disappointing millennium. And 
all you have to do is adopt a scheme of chronology that equates a day of creation, remember the sevens in Daniel, with 1,000 years of world history. Now, the tradition stated that Messiah would come in the sixth millennium, ushering in the millennial reign in the seventh. And going by the Septuagint chronology, which was the original Hebrew timeline, that meant that the sixth millennium was already underway by the time the second temple was built. In fact, the advent of Christ was practically in the middle of it. So that was a big red flag for Jews in the second century AD. They were not happy. And to make matters worse, political unrest in Jerusalem continued in the second century. The Bar Kokhba revolt in AD 135 was most likely the catalyst for the substantial revision of genealogies in the primeval history. For those who aren't familiar, the Bar Kokhba revolt was brought about by a man who claimed to be the Messiah and tried to lead a rebellion against Rome, which ultimately backfired and resulted in severe backlash against the Jews. This had the effect of making Jewish leaders very quick to silence anybody who came along promoting messianic expectations. And they figured that the best way to do this was to convince everybody that the Messiah was still at least a thousand years away. And given that the Masoretes were uniquely placed to be able to exercise that document control that I mentioned earlier, as far as the cult in Judea was concerned, they were able to pull it off. By altering the genealogies in the primeval history, that is Genesis 5 to 11, the Masoretes removed some 1,250 years from the timeline, which had the effect of projecting messianic expectation that far into the future because it put the present day from their perspective in the fourth millennium, not the sixth. That meant that the time of messianic expectation was pushed well beyond the actual time of the advent of Christ in a desperate attempt to stifle the messianic discussion in Roman-occupied Judea at the time. This was actually an idea they got from the Talmud. It's interesting that historians, as far back as Eusebius in the late 3rd, early 4th century, were writing about this deflated version of the biblical timeline that existed in the Masoretic tradition. But it was not only the timeline that was altered by the Masoretes, they also needed to change terminology here and there in other parts of scripture, such as the alteration of Deuteronomy 32 verses 8 and 9 to eliminate the reading sons of God for the alternative sons of Israel. And that's just one of a host of alterations that were done with the specific aim of eliminating the possibility of using the biblical text to conclude that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And yet Christianity flourished and the word of God was spread far and wide, and which version of the Hebrew Bible was carried abroad by the missionaries of Jesus Christ? It was the version most closely aligned with the original word of God in Hebrew, the Greek Septuagint. As I mentioned earlier, that was considered the standard authoritative text for the church until the reformers adopted the Masoretic text. And eventually, critical scholarship supplanted the authority of the Septuagint on the basis that a rabbinic timeline invented in the 2nd century AD, 500 years later, designed specifically to reject Jesus as Messiah, didn't agree with it. But hang on, you said the point of the beginning ages in Genesis 5 and 11 were put there to establish a chronology. And, and you also said the Jews were using Daniel 9 as their anchor point to provide a timeline to the Messiah. So how can they be doing both of those things? Yeah, that's a good point. If the book of Daniel's early, then they don't need the beginning ages of the patriarchs to point to the Messiah. And if it's late, you don't need Daniel 9 because you already have the patriarchs. The audience of this podcast will already know that I favor an early date for Daniel. But whichever way you cut it, it seems kind of redundant unless the timeline provided by Daniel 9 and that provided by the begetting ages of the patriarchs in the primeval history are actually pointing to different end goals. And in that case, you need both of them. So if Daniel 9 points to the coming of Messiah as king, then what's the original purpose of the primeval history timeline? It can't be a millennial understanding because the timeline would be out by more than 
1400 years compared to the actual advent of Christ. No, that's right. And that's why I think that the timeline preserved in the primeval history was actually designed originally to point to the completion of Solomon's temple and the establishment of the worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem. Just to be clear, we're talking about the original construction of the temple, not the second temple or the rededication that occurred under the Maccabees. And the whole point that the Samaritans were trying to undermine by revising their timeline in favour of Mount Gerizim was this authentication of the true worship of Yahweh at Jerusalem. But they had the dedication of the second temple in view as the point in time that they were opposed to because they saw that as the re-establishment of an idolatrous institution that had already been judged in the exile and shouldn't be repeated. Okay, so how does the Septuagint show this orientation toward the temple? How do we know that's the goal of the timeline? Remember how we were talking about the significance of the number 60 as being connected to kingship? Keep that in mind, but also consider that the number 70 is important because it reflects both divine and human totality in convergence. Remember that Genesis 1 shows that the entire cosmos is God's temple, so the earthly temple is supposed to reflect that totality. And there's one more thing that we need to know about the biblical use of numbers, which is a common theme in Semitic numerology. If you wanted to express something as being not just complete, but better than that, if you wanted to talk about something that was surpassing anything else, all you had to do was first express the original number that conveyed the idea you wanted, and then you'd go one better, you'd add a little bit more. It turns out that if you multiply 60 by 70, you get 4,200 years. And in order to express the surpassing greatness of the kingdom of Israel under Yahweh, the Septuagint timeline presents another 60 and gives a total 4,260 years from creation until the establishment of the original temple built under Solomon. This has the effect of communicating the idea that Solomon has established a kingship which has authority in heaven and earth, surpassing all others, because ultimately it is God who is king in Jerusalem. But what about Jesus? Doesn't everything in the Bible point to Jesus? Yeah, I can hear people objecting to this focus on the temple, given that we have this expectation that everything in the Bible builds toward and then develops on Jesus and what he did for us. And all I can say about that is we need to remember that this is a Jewish story that existed long before Jesus lived in the flesh. The story needed to make sense in its own context. You can't retrospectively create a timeline for something that happens in your future. The purpose of the genealogical timeline being presented in Genesis 5 and 11, with its strong ties to numerology related to kingship, is to set the tone for calculating history in terms of the sovereign rule of God over the cosmos. It establishes a framework for understanding God as Israel's true king from the outset. And now we can see why the author of the primeval history has been so harsh against the institution of human kingship. He's trying to tell us that only God can get this right. And the prophet Daniel is the one who told us when that was going to happen. So in Genesis 1, God inaugurates his cosmic temple and establishes the Sabbath cycle. In Genesis 2, God establishes man as his human representative and functionary on the land. In Genesis 3, God shows us that pursuing our own way of fulfilling God's mandate was effectively breaking the Sabbath. And then Genesis 4 shows what comes of that rebellion. In Genesis 5, we see the beginning of a chronological framework that points toward the restoration of the true worship of Yahweh from the perspective of a post-exile Jewish audience. That makes a lot of sense. I want to hear your giant questions. 
you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us in the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. Well, we didn't have Q&A last week, so we'd better make up for it with a good one in this episode. What have you got for us, Chris? Cheryl asked in the Divine Council Worldview Bible Discussion Group on Facebook, random question, how do angels and demons fight? Can they cut, hurt, kill each other? Kind of sarcastic about the killing, but truly wondering how this plays out. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Thanks to Cheryl for sending it in. It's not exactly straightforward, so I'm going to have to take the question apart and address it piece by piece. I guess the simple place to start would be where we get this idea of angels and demons fighting one another. And interestingly enough, you don't get it in the Bible. In fact, as far as I know, you don't get it in any Christian or pre-Christian material in the biblical period. And there's a simple reason for that is because if we're using biblical definitions, angels and demons are kind of chalk and cheese. Since the Bible talks about angels as divine messengers in Hebrew terminology, and as created divine beings in, in the Greek, we find some difference when we compare them to demons. In the Old Testament period, demons are referred to as territorial spirits. And in the Second Temple period, they're considered to be the disembodied spirits of the dead giants who were originally fathered by the rebellious sons of God or in the Greek tradition, fallen angels. So it should be reasonably clear that we're not talking about angels and demons as just good versus bad spirits. They're very different in nature and not equivalent in any sense. So we shouldn't be surprised to find that these two different kinds of entities are not found at conflict with one another in biblical material. Instead, it seems quite apparent that demons are at enmity with humankind insofar as their oppression of humanity serves to be antagonistic toward God, our Father. What God wants for us is to be united in faith and loyalty toward him so that we constitute the fullness of the body of Christ in the world, which then brings to fulfillment the original purpose of our creation as God's image bearers. For us, that means a return to our intended state of purity and holiness through sanctification, and it means everlasting life in the presence of our loving Father. And all of the enemies of God may not be united in any particular cause, but where they do find unity is in opposition to the Father's will. And if you've read my book, you'll know that it's that unity in opposition to God, that unity in chaos, that I've described as the embodiment of Leviathan. We might talk more about that another time. But anyway, we need to move on to the idea of angels in combat. As I said, you don't see them fighting with demons, but what you do see is that within the ranks of created divine beings, there is occasionally conflict that we can read about in scripture. Probably the most famous passage concerning angelic conflict comes from the book of Daniel chapter 10. Here I'm gonna read from verse one to verse 14. This is from the NIV. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true and it concerned a great war the understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. 
His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you and stand up for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For the vision concerns a time yet to come. Okay, so that's the end of the reading, and this is where it pays to read closely when it comes to the setting of the narrative. This is a time of Persian dominion over the people of Judah, who are still in captivity under King Cyrus. And remember the worldview of ancient Israel and the ancient Near East in general. The powers of the heavens operate according to the same principles of cosmic geography that determine the borders of the nations. So each kingdom has a divine power in charge of it. And that produces interesting circumstances for those people who find themselves in a foreign land. Because that means that although you have loyalty to the God of your people and the God of your land where you come from, you find yourself on foreign soil and therefore within the geographical dominion of a foreign God. And that means that when your God wants to communicate with you in that land, there are certain diplomatic issues that come to the fore. So why is it that the so-called Prince of Persia opposed the messenger sent by Daniel's God? Again, we should be connecting the dots here. Daniel's in Persia. He's subject to a Persian king. The Persian king is backed by the power of the Persian God. That's the Prince of Persia. And the God of Israel comes along and sends a messenger into Persia with a message for this Judean named Daniel. So now we have a situation where the representatives of these respective territories in the divine realm have opposing wills, and this is creating conflict. So how does this get resolved? Basically, the angel who comes to speak to Daniel enlists the aid of a higher ranking divinity. So the archangel Michael comes on the scene, and that seems to break the stalemate. It would appear that through either weight of numbers or the ability to pull rank or some other principle, or perhaps a combination of factors, the messenger of God was able to prevail against a real and powerful opposition in the heavenly realm. You'll notice that there is no mention of physical confrontation or any kind of weaponry or bloodshed or anything of that nature. Compare that to the violence described in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35. That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So in that case, we have the angel of the Lord in confrontation with human soldiers, and the language there is very indicative of physical violence. That's very different to the kind of standoff that we seem to have in Daniel 10, 13. We have other examples of angelic conflict as well. Jude 9 says, But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, 
did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, it's commonly believed that this reference made by Jude is referring to a lost portion of a first century Jewish apocryphal work called the Assumption of Moses. For our purposes, we're not really interested in tracking down the origin of the quote or debating canonicity or anything like that. But what we should be paying attention to is the legal framework implied in Jude's use of terminology. We have a dispute between two parties. We have condemnation, we have a charge of slander, and we have an appeal to authority. What we can see here is that in the Jewish mind, the heavens worked according to the principles of a courtroom. Hence the terminology that we're so used to hearing now about the divine council and the heavenly court. All of this implies that the way things get done and decided in the unseen realm is according to a legal framework. Look at all these other divine council passages that we have, like in the book of Job or 1 Kings 22, for example. You've got Psalm 82 and so many others. And that means that there's a certain protocol that dictates how conflicts are resolved. It doesn't get done with weapons. There's no blood and guts. But there does appear to be a kind of hierarchy at work, and it would seem that you need to have a higher authority on your side if you hope to win your dispute. And that's why we're in such a good position having Jesus as an advocate in the heavenly places. That's why the devil is unable to bring accusation against us before the Father. Revelation 12.10 says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. So that's from the book of Revelation. The whole thing is set in a courtroom setting. That's made pretty clear quite early in the book, but most of us just gloss over that. But yeah, hopefully that's a good answer for you, Cheryl. Um, thanks again for asking that question. What an interesting concept. It's actually uh, quite fascinating. Uh, anyway, that's a wrap for this week. And when we come back next time, we'll finally be able to start on our verse-by-verse study of Genesis 5. What an epic introduction to the chapter. I never thought we would have needed four episodes just to get us ready for this material. Yeah, that's right. It turned out bigger than expected. But I think that's a good thing because it sets us on a solid foundation for our study of Genesis 5. And that's going to set us up for the remainder of the primeval history, which is, of course, what we're all about here on the podcast. So it's important that we get it right. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good call. We'll see you next week. See you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Mm. Mm. Yeah. What's the uh, eggnog situation?
Mm, none this week. I haven't been able to get out. Um, True. But when we are saying earlier that it looks like the timeline of the Septuagint, Septuagint, Septuagint. So, yeah, I I had um, the weekend away in Durant Bay. Oh, cool. Um, where there is no eggnog because it's a fishing town and, you know, people are gruff and spiteful and you know, there is no room for joy and festive living. So why can't I say that word? Say it, say it for me. Septuagint. Is that right? Um, you know, because it's all about the uh, the fish. All uh, we tried a bit of fishing, um, broke a handful of my squid lures and caught nothing. Um, so, yeah. Um, but they, they, it was their first time learning how to fish and... Uh, even though um, Dylan left the jetty in tears, oh. uh, he still uh, really enjoyed it and thanked me repeatedly for uh, taking him out. Oh, so, you know, that's, I guess that's what it's like learning to fish, isn't it? You know, your first time, you know, he's only little. So, yeah. Um, yeah, the other two kids... Uh, Seem to enjoy themselves. I don't know how much fun they were really having, but um, anyway, they they all participated. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think they'll be keen to have another go later on. So yeah, that was cool. I did my usual thing where I go away for the weekend and I come back so tired that I need time off to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Septuagint. Is that right? <laughs> now I doubted myself. Okay. Okay. So how does the septu- septuagint? Septuagint. Why am I struggling with that word tonight?